All right, again, welcome to Cornerstone. I'm Pastor Brian Foreman, and here at Cornerstone, we inspire and equip you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. That's what we're all about because we know that following Jesus wholeheartedly makes life better and makes you better at life. Uh, for the benefit of those watching or listening online, if you haven't already, please go ahead and check in. We want to know that you're here. You can do that on the front page of our app, or you can go to cornerstonenh.org here and check in there. Now we, as I mentioned earlier, are in a series called Unfinished Business, where we are working through the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, and we are getting towards the end. We are in the final lap. We can see the finish line. Uh, but what this book is all about is unfinished business. It's unfinished business that Titus was taking care of on the island of Crete. You can see he said, Paul's writing to him and says, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there. And the big idea for the whole series is that you are God's unfinished business and God never leaves business unfinished. And I've given you five words that will sum up the entire book of Titus. And those are deeds, creed, lead, impede, and needs. So by now you should probably have that pretty much down. The idea is that we make sure our deeds line up with our creed so that we have people who are qualified to lead and our reputation won't impede as we meet urgent needs. Now this week, and as we wrap up this series, we are going to focus on this idea of impeding. We do not want to impede. We do not want to put any unnecessary roadblocks in the path. And we've already started talking about those, but I'm going to just give you kind of the overview of all of the different roadblocks that he is talking about in this letter. Last one that we've spent the last couple of weeks on is this idea that you do not destroy your credibility with bad behavior. Don't destroy your credibility with bad behavior. And we talked about two different kinds of behaviors that can impede, and that is just doing wrong. That's not good. Or there are certain things that you can do that just aren't helpful or appropriate or beneficial. So that was the first roadblock that he's saying you need to make sure that your deeds line up with your creed because you don't want to destroy your credibility with bad behavior. Today, we're talking about the second one. Don't get derailed by fruitless debates and made-up rules. And obviously, we'll come back to that. And thirdly, we'll finish up next week. Don't tolerate division or divisive people. So today... Today's message is derailed, and we're talking about not getting derailed. And the question that this is going to answer is this one. Should I focus in or tune out? And kind of like last week's question, that might not have been the question that you were waking up with this morning wondering, you know, I sure hope Brian talked about this. You don't even know what that means, and I get that. But, uh, but it is an important question because here's what I'm talking about. There are always going to be people or topics or media that are screaming for your attention and saying, you really need to pay attention to this. You really need to care about this. You really need to do something about this. And if, I don't know about you, but like beginning the middle of November, 
my inbox, my email inbox started getting inundated from everybody that I've ever given, every business, every organization that I've ever given my email to has decided that this is the time to get back in touch with me. And I get that, it's Black Friday, it's all of that, but I am just inundated with emails saying, care about this, save this, apply this discount, uh, screaming for attention, but isn't that kind of what we experience on a daily basis, whether it's the news or politics or sometimes people who are talking about faith-related issues say you've got to care about this. So the question is, with all of those things, you can't possibly give all of them your attention or certainly not the attention that they want you to give. So what are the things that you should focus in on and what are the things that you can safely tune out. I think that this passage, this message gives direction to us on that so that we can focus in on what's most important and safely, easily decide to tune out things that are not important. Ultimately, what we're going to be talking about today is fruit. And fruit, not in the sense of, you know, fruit cakes and oranges from Florida or apple picking, but the biblical idea, the fruit of fruit, which is the, the results. I almost picked the word results here, but I'm going to stick with that biblical idea of fruit. It's, it's all about results. What kind of fruit does something produce? And the bottom line is this. You cut it off at the root if it doesn't produce good fruit. You examine the fruit. You think about what kind of fruit is this producing in my life? What kind of fruit does this produce? And that will give you the insight and direction that you need to know what to tune into and what to tune out. So we're going to give you two specific things that are found in the scripture today. One is to evaluate teaching by its fruit. Uh, I almost used the word doctrine there. That's the idea of doctrines or teaching you evaluate it by the kind of fruit that it produces. And then secondly, the Apostle Paul and Titus were dealing with a big issue there on Crete of legalism. And the, and the advice is to avoid legalism like the plague. Avoid legalism like the plague. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll be able to explain that in just a second. Practically speaking, what I'm going to ask you to do is to audit your inputs. You see, with so many things vying for your attention, for so many people and issues screaming for your attention, you have to audit your input and say, what things are producing good fruit in my life? What things are not? What things do I need to tune out? And what things do I need to focus in on? So that's going to be the practical step that we'll look at today. I mentioned earlier that my daughter Joy is here uh, from college for the weekend, and so I've asked her to read our focus passage for today. So Joy, you can come on up, and she's going to read to you Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 11. She's going to read from the New Living Translation, if you'd like to follow along, or you can just listen in. You can just let it hold it. All right. <laughs> okay. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, 
<clears throat> but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good for, and beneficial for everyone. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth. It is their own sins that condemn them. All right. Thank you very much, Joy. So as we said, bottom line, you cut it off at the root if it's not producing good fruit. And that goes for the teaching or doctrine that you are listening to. Listening to. The big problem that the church on Crete was facing was false teachers. So when Paul told Titus, you need to establish these leaders in the churches, one of the main things that he had on his mind is if we have good leaders who know their doctrine and are leading exemplary lives, then that will help us deal with these false teachers that have arisen. So what what are these false teachers like? We'll go back to chapter one, where he begins to talk about them after laying out, this is what you should look for in leaders. This is the good character that you're looking for. He contrasts it to the opposition that they are encountering. He says, for, why is it important to set up these leaders? Because there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. So what do we know about the false teachers? Number one, they were in rebellion. They were not obeying God's commands regardless of what they said. Their talk was useless and as a result, it is deceiving. It is not true. Now contrast this, when, he's, when he says this, it's almost like a callback to the very first verses of the passage because it says in the intro where Paul's just introducing himself, he describes himself as apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith and for those who have faith, their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So he's saying, look, I was called to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that knowledge is based in the truth. We were eyewitnesses of his glory and all that he did. And that truth leads to godliness. If you embrace that truth, if you embrace the gospel, it's going to make a positive difference in your life. It's going to have good results or good fruit. So this is already in his mind because this is how he started out the whole book, the whole letter in verse one. Then when he comes back to contrast the false teachers, instead of a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a fruitful knowledge, the kind of fruit that you want, he says the talk that these false teachers are engaging in is useless. It doesn't, it doesn't bring about the kind of fruit, the kind of results that you are looking for. So that's the context when he comes into the passage that we just read in chapter three towards the end of the book when he says, do not get involved 
in foolish discussions. Well, what makes a discussion, if somebody's trying to engage you and, uh, and wants you to care about something, how do you decide? Don't get involved in foolish discussions. Well, what makes something foolish? These things are useless and a waste of time. In other words, they don't produce good fruit in your life. If you're talking about, if you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to, it is a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Whereas these things that he's talking about are foolish discussions. Why? In part because they don't bring about godliness and in fact, sometimes quite the opposite. He's encouraged him in the verse before to focus on the gospel message. And again, it's that same idea. These things, these teachings, the gospel message are good and beneficial. They are useful. They produce good fruit. So what are those foolish discussions that the Apostle Paul is advising him to just completely tune out, don't even engage? That's the rest of verse 9. Foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about Jewish obedience to Jewish laws. So we deal with different issues, but the specific issues that the Apostle Paul and Titus were dealing with on the island of Crete were these. Now, what is spiritual pedigrees? The best I can understand from my study is that some people would really get into, you know, if you read through the Bible and you start with Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, you get to uh, somewhere in around numbers, you start getting into lists of people and so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot so-and-so and it keeps on going on and so-and-so and on and on and so-and-so. And that's where you get lost. But they would uh, assign a lot of meaning and a lot of... Uh, esoteric kind of extra insights that they felt like they were getting from these genealogies. And, and so there was a lot of attention paid to them. And sometimes they would even use these stories of these ancient people in the scriptures to justify behaviors that were clearly not good, not righteous, not holy. And so he's saying, you, you know, these people are engaging you in these discussions they're number one fruitless. They're not going to produce the kind of good fruit that, that the gospel does in your life. And in fact, it might do the exact opposite. It'll give you a justification for doing wrong. So that's obviously not going to be helpful. And then he says, or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. And this was a big thing because the big issue in that day was Jesus was the, is the Jewish Messiah. And so if you are going to follow Jesus, do you first have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? And a big part of becoming a, follow, a, a Jewish person was obedience to all the laws in the Old Testament. So do you have to, in essence, become a Jew before you be, can become a Christian? And so there were many people who said, yes, you absolutely do. Just because you're following Jesus doesn't mean you can jettison the Jewish faith. You have to obey these laws and follow these laws. Now, obviously the church and the Paul in particular were adamantly opposed to that because that was a legalism and Jesus completed the law, brought it to its fulfillment and conclusion. And so the Christian believers were not in, uh, were not in um, 
We're not required to follow these laws, but that's what they were saying. So how does that relate to us? There are always going to be people who will have pet theological perspectives that are really important to them that they are going to want you to be really concerned about as well. The question is, does it produce good fruit or is it divisive? Is it not helpful? Is it just getting you off track? Uh, there are often documentaries or shows on cable channels about the Bible that go off into these tangents that are really not that helpful and aren't going to produce any good fruit, but people get engaged with them and they start thinking about them. And sometimes people can get distracted by these kinds of things. So the question becomes, is it gospel truth? Is it solid straight down the line in line with the scriptures? And is it producing good fruit? You examine doctrine, you evaluate teaching by whether or not it produces good fruit fruit. I'm sure all of you, if you've been walking with Jesus, been involved in the church at any, for any particular time, can think of some of these sideline theological issues that people get really excited about and really aren't adding anything to your walk and making a positive difference in the way that you live out your life. So notice that the prescription was in us, don't have these conversations. Don't engage in these foolish discussions. Now, that might seem a little extreme because, well, what if, what if you, know, you, you talk to this person and you can kind of bring them out of it? Well, yeah, that would be a good thing, but why does he give this particular instruction? He explains in the end of this passage in verse 11, this is the message translation, that if a person is so sidelined and sidetracked by this, and when you try to talk to them, it doesn't get you anywhere, that's when it's safe to just disengage. He says, at that point, it's obvious that such a person is out of line, rebellious against God. By persisting in divisiveness, he cuts himself off. In other words, if they are continuing to be divisive and destructive in focusing on or teaching a false doctrine, then it's safe to just pull away. You don't have to engage with them because they've already cut themselves off. God may bring them around, but you don't have the responsibility to get all wrapped up in their mess. So you evaluate doctrine based on its fruit. Does it produce good fruit? When I focus on this, when we talk about this, is it doing something good for my soul and, and good in my walk with the Lord. So again, the bottom line, cut it off at the root if it doesn't produce good fruit. We've talked about evaluating teaching by its fruitfulness. Second part, avoid legalism like the plague. Avoid legalism like the plague. Let's go do the same thing that we did with the one. Go back to the beginning of the book where he first talks about this. And after describing them as rebellious who are engaged in useful talk, he goes on to say, this is especially true, verse 10 of chapter 1, of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. And this is related to that same discussion that we were having earlier about following Jewish laws. The number one thing that distinguished a person who is converting to Judaism is they would go through the rite of circumcision. 
And there were many people at the beginning of the Christian movement who said, you've got to be Jewish before you can become Christian. And the sign of becoming Jewish was circumcision for males, obviously. So that's what he's saying is there are these people that are focused in on that. They are demanding that. But this is a form of legalism. What is legalism? Legalism says that if I want to get in goods, God's good graces, there are certain hoops that I have to jump through, certain things that I have to do, certain things that I have to not do. Most religious systems are some form of legalism, that it, you know, do this or don't do this, and that's how you get into the family of God. Now, what the Apostle Paul was saying is, this is absolutely not required because our faith is different. It's not based on what you do, but on what Christ has done. And that's why in that first section of the passage that Joy read for us, the focus is all about the gospel. And I'll focus in on this key verse at the beginning, verse five, the first part. It says, he, talking about God, saved us. He rescued us. He redeemed us. He brought us into the kingdom of God and into the family of God. Not by works of righteousness that we had done. It's not based on what we do, but according to his mercy. And that is actually the New American Standard. I didn't change that. But I, I changed the translation because I wanted to pull out those two emphases. It's number one, God is the one who has saved us. He, he reiterates, not by works of righteousness that we had done, not by our righteousness, but according to his mercy. It's based on his mercy, not our works. So in your growth guide, I've given you a little table and we're gonna contrast and compare our works and his mercy our works and his mercy. On the our works side, it starts out like this, legalism. There are certain things that I do or don't do and that earns me entrance into God's family, God's kingdom, God's good graces, which is kind of a funny way of describing it since it has nothing to do with grace. So uh, the system has changed over the years, but there are still people who will advocate things like this or might even say, yes, we're saved by faith and saved by grace and all that, but you better do this particular thing. You better not do this particular thing. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't right and wrong. There is definitely right and wrong. We've already said you can destroy your credibility by doing wrong. But what this is, is taking items of personal preference or conviction and making them universal because I believe or feel this way, because I do or don't do this thing, everybody else has to too. And if you don't do these things, then you are out. We're gonna cut you off. We're gonna reject you in some form or fashion, which leads to the second characteristic of an our works kind of religion, which is judgmentalism. You see, if I think that I can earn my way into God's favor, then I'm, going, I'm judging myself positively 
But if you don't live up to those standards and do all those things that I say that you should do, then I'm going to judge you because you are falling short. Judgmentalism naturally flows from a legalistic perspective. And then that, in turn, leads to hypocrisy. It leads to hypocrisy. Here's why. If my standing with God is based on my performance, then I have to maintain my performance. And I have to do well and do good all the time or else by my own standards, I'm cut off from God. So not only am I harshly judging myself, I've got to follow down the line, I'm harshly judging others, but inevitably, I'm going to fall short and I'm not going to live up, I don't even live up to my own standards. So what do I have to do? If I admit that I haven't lived up to my own standards, all these things that I'm saying are important for you to do, then I'm sunk. I, I, I've lost my credibility and I've lost my standing with God. So I have to pretend that I always do all things well because I can't admit that I've fallen short and I can't certainly let you see that I have fallen short. So I have to maintain this pretense that I'm always doing well. And since I'm not always doing well, I fall into hypocrisy. And then lastly, that leads to separation or separatism. You see, because if I'm judging myself and others harshly, then I'm going to include myself in the good guys and everybody else who doesn't meet those standards and doesn't agree with me, I have to separate from them. I have to draw a defining line because I'm one of the good people and you are one of the bad people. And sometimes the verse that says, come out from among them and be separate is used. Now, you should separate yourself from evil. And sometimes, because you become like the people that you're around, it, you have to use some wisdom and discernment. But what this is, is actually separation from other brothers and sisters in Christ just because they don't share the same exact convictions that you do. And rather than focusing on and gathering around and circling around the mission and ministry and person of Jesus, it actually ends up dividing the body of Christ based on the secondary, less important not critical issues. So this is how an R works salvation works. Legalism, judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and separation. Let's contrast that to salvation that is according to his mercy. Aside, uh, uh, in opposition to the idea of legalism is righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is ultimately about relationships. It's about a right standing with God and right relationships with others. In the gospel, because of what Jesus did, not what we do, but what Jesus did on the cross, we can have his righteousness imputed, gifted to us. So our standing before God 
is not based on legalistic standards of what, we, what religious hoops we jump through or don't jump through, what things we happen to have done or not done, but because we all fall short, it is gifted to us because of what Christ did on the cross, and we can walk into fellowship with God, be adopted into his family, and be citizens in his kingdom. As a result of that imputed righteousness and a changed inside, God has made us new on the inside, all recreated us from the inside out. We begin to want the things that he wants and do the things that he would have us to do. So it definitely makes a change in your behavior, but it's from the standpoint of a relationship, not trying to earn or work myself into a relationship. So in contrast to legalism is the righteousness that God gives. In contrast to judgmentalism, you will find graciousness. Because when you realize that you could have done nothing to receive the grace and goodness of God, to walk into that relationship with him, that you were constantly failing and unable to do anything about your spiritual state, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God in his mercy reached out of heaven, pulls you up from the depths of death and destruction and sin and places you in his family, forgiving your past, writing a new ending to your story. You recognize that everybody around you is in the same boat as well. And they are, their only hope is God's grace and goodness, just like it was your only hope as well. And so that ends up being reflected in your interactions with other people because you become gracious rather than judgmentalist. Is that a word? (laughs) But that's the idea, right? Is that if I recognize that I only stand where I stand because of the goodness and grace of God and what Jesus did on the cross, then I can extend grace to others. If people who don't know Jesus act like people who don't know Jesus, I'm not surprised. I'm not judging them because how did it stand out? How did this this section start? We were all like that. We were all like that. Look at the beginning, verse three and beyond. We were all like that, but God in his graciousness. So it adds graciousness. The other thing that it does is it results in authenticity. Authenticity instead of hypocrisy. You see, if I believe that I have to maintain some kind of standard or behavior or some kind of checklist that some person has come up with, then I'm going to be constantly trying to pretend that I match up with that. But if I recognize that the only way I stand in, in the family of God is by his grace, that when I fail, I can be honest about that. That doesn't, that doesn't undo my sense of myself. I, I kind of expect that. Yeah, there's, there, God is at work and he's doing new things in me, but, but there's this overlap and the old nature is still there and sometimes I still blow it. Sometimes I still mess up and that's okay because I can admit that. That's how I, that's how I came into this relationship, admitting I'm broken and I can't do anything about it really but God accepts me and loves me and is doing something about it for me so I can be open and honest about my failings. It leads to authenticity. 
And then lastly, and instead of separation, there is acceptance. There is acceptance. Now, does that mean that you approve of sin? No, don't be ridiculous. That's, of course, not what it means. But what it means is, what's, what's the scripture says? It says, uh, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. How did Christ accept you? He did everything possible and necessary in order for you, a rebellious sinner who was in his or her rebellion, to be rescued and redeemed, provided for everything, whether you were going to receive it or not, gave it to you as a gift and accepted you on that basis, on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. So how does that work out? I can, I can receive others. I don't have to separate from them, um, even within the family of God. But, you know, people are going to have different convictions, different side theological issues. Look, I don't even believe this. I don't even agree with myself from five years ago, ten years ago. There are things that I've hopefully grown in and understand better. So I'm going to separate from you because you don't agree with me on... Uh, on this little minute piece of doctrine? No, we rally around the idea of Jesus, Jesus the King, Jesus God in the flesh, Christ crucified. Those are the non-negotiables. Everything else, I can love and accept you because we're all in process and my acceptance before God is not based on my getting every single doctrinal point right or having a perfect obedience record. It's based on what Christ has done. And so we turn around and we extend that same acceptance, that same grace, that same kindness to the people around us as well. So he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. And that's what it looks like. So what are we supposed to focus in on? We're supposed to focus in on those things. If, uh, Paul tells Titus, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings. In other words, this is what I want you to focus on. These are the things that I want us to rally around as the church of Jesus Christ. And what are those things? He goes on from verse 5a and just expands on this idea of his mercy, not our righteousness. He says, he, God, washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. I love that because it, it, it talks about the washing away of sins. My past has been put away. I've been washed clean. He's given us a new birth. He started a new chapter in our lives and new life through the Holy Spirit. He, God, Who's the focus of this whole section? He, God, generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's started that new life and he's put his Holy Spirit in you so that now you want the things that he wants and you have the power to do the things that he wants you to do. And he continues this emphasis because of his grace. Whose grace? God's grace. He, God, made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Who is the one who initiated all this? It's God. Who is the one who saves us? It is God. Who is the one who carries it through all the way to completion? It is God. It is he that gives us that hope 
that we look forward to, that the work that he has started in each of us, that unfinished business, he will carry all the way through to completion because you are God's unfinished business and he never leaves business unfinished. So what does that mean? That means when you say yes to Jesus, here's your first actionable next step. What can you do with what you've heard today? If you're watching or listening online, if you're here and you just realize, I've heard it, but I've never done it. I've never actually taken that step. I've entrusted my life to Jesus. I've been trying to earn his earn my way into his salvation, which is a ridiculous prospect. I know I can't do it. I need to receive it as a gift. That's what we mean by saying yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Savior, he takes care of the past. You are forgiven because of what he did on the cross. And Lord, you're going to, he's the boss. You, he's going to call the shots in your life and you're committed to following him. He goes on to say in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these teachings. This is what we focus on. We focus on the gospel. And when he starts to write that new chapter in your life, write a new ending to your story, he changes your desires and your heart so that you want to do the right things. It says, so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. Devote themselves to doing good. If you are following Jesus, if you focus in on the essentials, if you set aside the false teaching of legalism, then what, it, what will happen is you will, you will start to see that transforming effect in your life. You will trust God and you will start devoting yourselves to doing good. This, this is fruitful. It is the teachings, the kind of teachings that are good and beneficial for everyone. So today we've been talking about the results, results of doctrine, the fruit that it bears in your life. The Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, Titus, that it is safe to just cut off any discussion, any false teaching, any legalistic trends or teaching because you just cut it off at the root if it doesn't produce good fruit. You avoid legalism like the plague. You evaluate teaching and doctrine by its fruit. And so I'm gonna ask you to audit your input. Here's one way to ask this question. Evaluate who or what has agitated or upset you lately? What has got you agitated or upset? Something that somebody said that kind of threw you off track. You were doing well, you were feeling like you were moving in the right direction, but then somebody threw a monkey wrench into this and got you agitated and upset, made you question something that you've long believed, kind of just thrown you off course. And you realize you were on a good path but now you're kind of derailed. You've been distracted by that. Let's ask, is this bearing good fruit in your life? Is there something or someone that you need to just kind of just cut off that conversation, just disengage? They want to engage you. They want you to care about. They want you to be agitated and upset and angry, but it's just not bearing good fruit in your life. It might be time to just disengage from that conversation, kind of pull back from that person for a while. 
and focus in on other things if you're not already committed to worshiping together weekly to make this a habit then that's the kind of input that's going to safeguard you and keep you on the right track lastly we said following jesus but really that's the process for all of us isn't it it's every day getting up and saying jesus you purchased my life on the cross I now give my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Today, you have my unconditional yes. You just tell me what direction you want me to go. In your growth guide, you have the check-in card. Across the bottom of the check-in card are some of our next steps. So if it's helpful to you, just circle that, okay? That's your way of saying, I'm committing to this. Saying yes. If that's your daily commitment, go ahead and circle that. If you're saying yes for the first time, put a second circle around it so we know that this is, this is, this is a once in a lifetime, I'm going to follow Jesus from this point on decision. If you're deciding, okay, I've been kind of lackadaisical in my commitment to being here for worship, circle that worship and say from this point on, that's gonna be my habit. If I'm around, if I'm available, if I'm well, I'm going to be here. And let's focus in on those things that are going to bear good fruit in our lives so that we who trust in God, not in ourselves, not in our own performance, will devote ourselves to doing good. These are the kinds of teachings that are beneficial, good, produce good fruit and good results in our lives. So let's focus in on them and disengage from all that other stuff. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word because we know that the truth, the gospel truth, the story of Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means for us is contained in the scriptures. Lord, we pray that you would speak to every heart watching, listening here today, that you would speak specifically to each one of us. Show us those places where we need to lean in and places where we need to disengage. And Lord, may, may we see good fruit in our lives as a result. Give us not only that wisdom, but also the courage and determination to act accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.